1: Welcome to the Thoughts from a Page podcast, a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network, hosted by me, Cindy Burnett, a voracious reader and book columnist who provides you with casual author conversations and insider information on all of the newest releases that I have read and recommend. With so many books coming out weekly, it can be hard to decide what to read, so I find the best ones and share them with you. For more book recommendations or to find my backlist of interviews, visit my website at thoughtsfromapage.com. If you love to read, please consider joining my Patreon group. I offer at least two bonus episodes a month, one where I talk about the next month's most anticipated books and one where I chat with an independent bookseller, all about their store and the books that they recommend. In addition, I host a monthly early read where members have advanced access via NetGalley to a digital copy of a book, and then we meet on Zoom with the author pre-publication to chat about that book. January's book is The Sweet Spot by Amy Popel and for February, there are two, Lauren Willig's new book, Two Wars and a Wedding, and a debut by Lee Abramson called A Likely Story. Thanks so much to those who already participate, and I hope you will consider joining us. Today, Kevin Lyon joins me for my December Behind the Scenes episode. Kevin is a founding partner of Marshall Lyon Literary Agency. With over 25 years in the publishing business, including over 10 years as a literary agent, and 17-plus years on the wholesale, retail, and distribution side of the business. She brings an informed and unique perspective to her work with clients. Kevin holds an MBA from the Anderson School of Management at UCLA. I hope you enjoy our conversation. You know, a lot can happen in seven minutes, and luckily, that's how long it takes me to tell a story. My name is Aaron Calafato, and I'm the creator of 7-Minute Stories. I'm proud to partner with Evergreen Podcasts. And I'd like to invite you to join me on this journey. I'm going to take you on some crazy roller coaster rides using my unique extemporaneous storytelling style. And together, we're going to try to make sense of the world, all through the art of storytelling and all in approximately seven minutes. Welcome, Kevin. How are you today? I'm great. Thank you. How are you? I am so good. And I'm thrilled to pieces that you're joining me for my behind the scenes series, because I have heard your name for years upon years and I cannot wait to talk to you about all things related to being a literary agent.
0: Well, I'm looking forward to it. I don't think I've been on a podcast before, at least not in a very long time.
1: Well, let's start out with you talking just generally about what a literary agent does and then what you do specifically.
0: Generally, a literary agent represents authors in all things related to their business of writing. So it's everything from Of course, reading their work early on to determine if it's a good match, to then working with them to prepare the work, to sell it to a publisher, and then from that point forward, once it's sold, working with them and the publisher to help put the best plan possible together to take the book to market. And then beyond that, it's the ongoing assistance in managing their career as an author. Um, whether it's next books, contracts, ongoing work with the publisher on publicity and marketing, determining strategies for whether they stay with a particular publisher or move, helping them decide if they want to pursue more than one stream of writing, whether it's YA and adult or romance and straight women's fiction, basically helping them manage their business and their career as a writer.
1: And then is there anything that you specifically do that's different than any of that?
0: Well, I I mean, I think every agent approaches it a little bit differently. I see my work with my clients as a long-term endeavor that we are in it for a career, not for a book. And I work really hard to try and support each and every one of their books. Even to the extent where I've taken on authors who have books that may have been sold by their previous agent, but I feel like it's in my best interest to help them support that work because it will help propel their success going forward, which may be different than other agents. I don't know. But I do feel like I'm very involved in the hands on management of their career and I'm very accessible to them which I've occasionally heard is not always the case of some agents. It just depends, I think, on everyone's style differs a little bit. But my style tends to be quite collaborative with my clients. And that's worked well for me
1: over the years. Absolutely. And you have your own agency at this point, correct?
0: We do. Yeah, Jill and I actually both worked for another agent in the San Diego area many years ago. And then in 2009, we decided to strike out on our own. So Jill Marshall and I formed Marshall Line Literary Agency in 2009 and have been going strong and really never looked back ever since then.
1: Well, I always associate you with historical fiction because that's how I first heard your name. And then ever since then, I feel like your name pops up every time there's an author I'm reading. You're like the who's who of historical fiction Renee Rosen, Erica Roebuck, Bryn Turnbull, Kate Quinn, Stephanie Dre, Jennifer Robson. It just goes on and on and on. That's really just amazing.
0: It is. And I'm very lucky because it is definitely a genre that I love to read and have always read, even before I became an agent. I was a huge historical fiction reader. I love history. And I feel like uh, historical fiction is a great way to learn history, but to make a story out of it and to really bring people and what they may have endured during really difficult times to life on the page. And I feel like really good historical fiction is the best way to sort of appreciate history and the past and, and to know a little bit more about historical events.
1: I agree completely. I think that's why I like the genre so much as well. You can learn so much, but you're also reading a powerful story. So it's not like you're just reading history as it unfolds, but you're learning tons upon tons about whatever the book's about, but you're also really becoming invested in the characters.
0: Oh, absolutely. And and that really is the key to a good novel is you have to love the characters and to really feel their pain as you read the story with them, as well as hopefully a fulfilling ending. It isn't always a happy ever after, but an ending that you appreciate because you've come to love the character and brings the novel to a fulfilling close for you.
1: I agree with that completely. But I wasn't familiar with the fact that you also do contemporary fiction. So do you want to talk a little bit about that as well?
0: Yes, I've always done both since we started, um, because I've always loved both. Um, I represent a number of wonderful contemporary authors, both in the romance field and in the straight women's fiction. In fact, one of my authors, Laura Griffin, has been with me from the beginning. She's one of my very first sales way back when, when I was with another agency, and she writes romantic suspense. And we are many, many, many books together. Um, I also represent Jennifer Probst, Jane Agaro, Bev Kendall, a number of wonderful contemporary writers, both in the romance field and in women's fiction. And it is, sometimes it's a great reprieve from a dense, big historical novel, just to dive into a contemporary world and to sometimes get a laugh out of it or see a recognizable situation to present day that I think is, it's a great mix for me as a reader and as an agent.
1: I'm that same way as a reader. I really vary it up between historical fiction, mysteries and thrillers and contemporary fiction because you do need a change of pace.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. It definitely provides spice of life to your reading because I do find that every now and then I just need a good Jennifer Probst novel. And she just sent me her new book, for example, and I was like, oh, I'm in the mood for this. Perfect. So it it really is one of the best parts of my job is being able to mix it up with different types of reading and stories.
1: I bet so. So how does it work for you from the beginning? You're not working with an author yet. Say I have written this historical fiction novel that I think is wonderful, and I send it your way. What does that process look like for you? Do you only read the first 10 pages? Do you read the whole book? I mean, how does it work from the beginning for you? So
0: from the beginning, it starts with a query and we use the query manager tool that many agents I think have gone to because it really helps us better manage the query process so that we don't get far behind on it. But it starts there with a really well-written query. And what I'm looking for in a query is one, a genre that I represent so that the author has done their homework. And then I'm looking for a description of the story that really captivates me that has a great hook, uh, whether it's historical or a contemporary novel, I want something that immediately catches my attention. From that point, then I will request the full manuscript. So my intention is always to read the full. That's what I'm hoping for. I want the author to captivate me such that I must read the full manuscript. Unfortunately, that doesn't happen uh, very often. It does happen, obviously, but often you can tell within the first 10 to 20 pages, not always, I will keep reading if the narrative is good, even if I feel like it's a little bit of a slow start or something like that, to see if it's something that I think I can work with and help through the editorial process. I've read through full manuscripts and then decided I'm going to pass because I just don't feel like the story has what it's going to take to sell in what's become a super difficult market, which I think we've always said. So it really varies. You can sometimes tell in 10 pages. Sometimes it takes me 50. Sometimes the whole manuscript. But often, what I'm looking for while I'm reading is when I know I'm loving something, I'm racing through it. 50 to 100 pages have gone by very quickly. And I'm beginning to think about who on the publishing side of the editors that I work with might love this book as well. So my mind immediately starts going, hmm, so and so would really like this too, I think. And then I know I'm on to something when I start to get that feeling.
1: Well, I want to definitely talk more about working with certain editors and feeling like what you just mentioned, okay, this book was really resonating with me. It's also going to resonate with so-and-so at Harper or whoever it is. But before that, will you quickly explain to me what the query management tool is? Because that's not something I'm familiar with, and I don't know if my listeners will be either.
0: Yeah, it's called Query Manager, and I honestly don't know who created it, but many agencies use it. And it is a form process that helps us manage the flow of queries. So it alerts us if something is over 30 days old. It does allow us to provide a form response to it with a pass or a please send the manuscript so that you can reply, we can reply within the tool itself. And it sends an email to the author. I think a lot of authors have become more familiar with it over time because so many agencies are using it. And then it holds the queries in the archive. So if there's ever a question like, I sent you this query and I never got a response and you can go, Oh my gosh, it's there and the response is there. Or if for some reason it's sitting in the aged queries, if something slipped over 30 days, which we try not to happen, then you can find it as well. So the link now is on our website as instead of saying send us an email, now it says, You can find Kevin here and it has my query manager page and the same thing for the other agents in our agency.
1: Oh, that's so interesting. And that's one of the reasons I love this series because I think a lot of readers don't know that some of these things happen behind the scenes, you know, authors do, and obviously agents do, but it's interesting to hear that that's become more organized and structured, which is probably to everyone's benefit.
0: Oh, it definitely is. And then it will tell you out of, you know, 500 queries you received in the past two months, how many did you request a manuscript from? So you can begin to sort of track your statistics on it, which is interesting. It's not terribly useful, to be honest with you. I think it's, it can be revealing for authors about how challenging the process is or depressing, I guess, depending on your <laughs> viewpoint. But. Right. Um, yeah, it's it, it. for us, it's been a huge benefit in terms of making sure we stay on top of queries and making sure we manage them better.
1: That's fascinating. And I'm happy to learn about it. As I said, it's fun to kind of fill in some of those little pieces. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about the second thing then. So you're reading a book and you're like, oh, I sold Erica Roebuck's book to Berkeley. This kind of seems like it's in the same vein or similar writing or something that editor might be interested in this one as well. So do you do a fair amount of that? I do. And I think in this business we tend agents
0: tend to gravitate to a certain group of editors. I try to diversify and I do. But you what happens is you learn editors that have similar tastes in reading to you. So if you look at my deals, you'll see that I do a ton of business with Tessa Woodward at HarperCollins or Kate Siever, or Amanda Bergeron or and so on and so on. Because over the years, I've learned that they have very similar reading interests to mine. And we like a lot of the same books. Now, that isn't to say that those are the only people I'll ever go to. Every time I go out, I'm searching to make sure that I'm finding people that might be interested based on what they've bought, or we have a conversation on the phone, and they tell me they'd like to get on my list for people that I will submit to. So it is an evolving list, but you do begin to learn people's tastes and preferences. And those names are the ones that often go through my head as I'm reading something. Or I may have, and this happened recently to me, I had a call with an editor, and I had just gone on submission with something, and what she told me that she was interested in just sounded like a complete match for this book that I had just gone out on submission with, and so I sent it to her. I pitched it to her and sent it to her, and she ended up buying it. So yes, there is an established list that I work with, and I, I begin to know kind of their tastes, but then I'm always looking for new opportunities to make sure that you can have just the right match or hopefully the right match for an author and a particular editor.
1: Well, I think that makes perfect sense because I know from being on Bookstagram for so long, there are certain people I line up very well with. So if somebody comes on and recommends a book and I line up with them, I'm like, I'm probably really going to like that book versus someone else recommends it. And I was like, oh, I've read some of the things they recommend. I like them. Some I don't. So I think it's just natural. I mean, different people have different ways that they read and things that appeal to them. And so it makes sense that it would happen on your end as well.
0: Yeah, definitely. There is no doubt. And um, it does start to look like a monopoly of things always going to the same editor. But in some cases, that's option books, because once you've got a successful author with a particular editor, often your author will stay with them for quite some time. So then you
1: end up doing a lot of deals with particular editors. Let's back up a little bit because we talked about people submitting to you. So you look at a manuscript, you read it, you think, oh, I actually really do want to work with this author. So you respond to them. Yes, let's talk. What happens after that?
0: So generally, now it it sort of depends on the author, but in that situation, I will always want to talk to someone on the phone. And sometimes I'm competing against other agents that may be offering representation, which is fine. I always believe that authors should be on submission to multiple agents if they feel that that's the best path for them. So generally that call will set up, you know, for the next couple of days, whatever works for the authors. And most authors nowadays are savvy to have sort of their list of questions that they want to make sure that they ask, which I think is great. So we'll cover a lot of ground in that sort of introductory call. What I'm looking for is the author's openness maybe to editorial feedback or a realistic view of what it means to be a debut author, say, in in the publishing world, and to make sure that they've, they've got realistic hopes and expectations for where the book may go, as well as to answer all of their questions about the process and There is a lot of that. Usually they want to understand the submission process. They want to understand, you know, the different rights, translation rights and film and sort of all of those things we can cover in an introductory call. Now, sometimes I'm talking to an author that may have been represented in the past by another agent, and they've decided to make a move. So then they understand sort of the ways that the business a little bit more. And then the It may be a lot more specific about how I work and how I will work with them because they may have been down a path with someone that they weren't as comfortable with or they left for a particular reason. So they may be more pointed in their questions, but that that's a really important call for both parties to make sure that you feel comfortable talking to somebody, that you feel like they have realistic expectations and that you're on the same page in terms of the path for the manuscript.
1: I was just going to say that, that you're on the same page, literally.
0: <laughs> yes, seriously.
1: Yes, exactly. Because that is important. You want to make sure expectations are managed on both sides. Yeah, yeah,
0: definitely. Yeah, I mean, look, if someone is coming in expecting to immediately be, be able to make a living in the business, unless they're, it's hard as a writer. It's hard. It's sort of like, don't give up your day job yet. Because I always say it's a marathon. It's not a sprint for most authors. It takes a lot of books to get to the point where you're really making enough to make a living. You may be one of these debut authors that has, you know, seven publisher auction or something, which those are, it's like winning the lottery to get that. It's that rare, I think, nowadays. But for the most part, most authors, it's book after book after book, building your audience, building your platform, and then be, being able to make a living at it. And you mentioned an author like Renee Rosen. Renee has been at this for a long time and she's a beautiful writer who tells amazing stories and she's very successful, but she's had, has a lot of books under her belt. So she's really put in the hard work to get there. And look at someone like Jennifer Armentrout. She's published like 60 books and she's hugely successful. But again, it's sort of my point is that it's, this is a marathon. And if this is what you really want, then I'm going to do whatever I can to help you get there. But I just, I want people to understand that it, it doesn't come quick and easy.
1: Absolutely not. I'm always completely floored by how many books are put out every single week. And you think about that number that are actually coming out, and then you have to back it up to kind of what we're talking about now and think about how many times you're pitched and every agent's pitched and every editor is pitched. There's just a lot out there.
0: There is. There's a lot of content. And much of it is really good. So there is, you've got to write the best book that you possibly can write. And then there is a lot of hard work that goes on the author's part and on the publisher's part to promote it. And then there is a dose of luck for those that just whatever happens to put that, bu- that book front and center in the public eye and let it get start to g- gain traction. I mean, I'll have authors that work so hard and we're just not gaining the traction that we hoped for on a particular book. So we try again on the next book and we try different things on the promotional front or whatever it may be, but it is it's a difficult business and, you know, I just want authors to understand that but that I'm willing to be there to push as hard as they are.
1: Yes, yeah, sometimes it's a matter of just being in the right place at the right time. Absolutely. So, you and an author speak on the phone, you decide you're going to work together, they sign a contract with you. What happens next?
0: So, then depending on where the manuscript is, right? So, there are some authors, particularly if you're previously published or represented, I may be reading a partial. I may, so we're going to sell you on proposal, or they're making a move and they have a substantive partial, and we then decide they need to finish. So, it sort of depends on where the manuscript is. If, assuming the manuscript is done, Um, a full manuscript is done. Then I will send over my notes on ways that I believe might improve the manuscript. Or in some cases, it's in such great shape. It's just things like typos and, you know, those kinds of catches. So we get the manuscript completely cleaned up and then we work on developing the pitch for the submission. So then we, I go into submission mode, which basically is developing a pitch developing a submission list. I share all of that with the author and then we go on submission and submission now can take anywhere from in the very rare case nowadays, depending on the author or the, the topic two weeks to 16 weeks. I mean, it, it can, it can be a long process because the editors are buried in work and yes, they still must acquire and they want to acquire, but sometimes it's hard to carve out the time. And then once they read and love it, they have to pitch it internally and get others on board. So then it can be a process. Once the submission is complete and hopefully we have interest, then we go to what are close. And close can either be a single interested party or multiple interested parties. And depending on how many, then we call it either a best offer auction or we go to an auction in rounds. And I explain all that to the author on how that's going to work. And then we close and hopefully we get a wonderful offer. (laughs) And the author is thrilled and the editor and the author talk and it's exciting times. And then we move into the contract negotiation.
1: So on that submission process, some people you may hear from in two weeks, some you may hear in 16. Do you just sit there and wait for that window of time? And do you hear back from every editor? Or do you give it a firm deadline and say, if I haven't heard by May 9th or whatever the date's going to be, then everybody that I have heard from is included in the auction. Or if you've only heard from the one party, you move forward. Like, how does that work?
0: Oh, you definitely, I nudge along the way. Um, So I mark my calendar uh, to nudge at somewhere if I haven't heard anything from four plus ish weeks. Just checking in kind of thing. If you hear from one that says, I'm interested, I'd love to set up time to talk to the author or they'll talk to me about their editorial thoughts on the on the page. If I once I have interest, then I can move everybody along at a at a quicker pace. So the minute you get one that's ready to move, then the process goes pretty quickly. So then Other people will jump on board and get their reads done. Or in some cases, if they just can't get to it, they will step away, which is one of the reasons why you don't want to push too hard too fast unless you have real interest, because you don't want people to step away just because they don't have time at that moment, which is why yeah, you can let it go to 16 weeks. So let's say you've gotten a couple passes in but you may have someone that said, you know, I've started it and I'm loving it so far, but I'm going to need more time to finish. So it's like, I want to hang on to that potential interest. It only takes one to love it to get an author on the path to publication. And that, and some, some of my most successful books had one or two editors interested. Um, you'd probably be shocked to hear of some of those for various reasons. And, So I'm always, I always want to make sure that I don't shut people out too early, but you don't want to let it drag on too long if you've got interest, because you want to make sure that someone who's jumping in with interest, that that enthusiasm is rewarded and you're like, yes, let's move this along and we'll move uh, more quickly to the close process.
1: Well, that's what I was wondering about. If somebody leaps up in three weeks and is like, oh my gosh, I love this book, but you've got all these other people you're waiting on that you're thinking, oh, I might, they might like it as well. How you balance all of that.
0: Yeah, you whoever jumps in with interest is the one that is now driving at least we're not going to let them languish. Then I'm going to say, okay, I'd like to close within the next week to 10 days or whatever it may be. So everybody else has got to finish their read or dip into the manuscript and figure out where they are on
1: it and get going. Makes sense. So then an editor purchases it, either one editor or you go to an auction, however that works, and you end up with the book going to some particular publishing house. What happens then?
0: Then it's, you do the deal memo, which basically outlines the high-level terms, how the advance is paid out, no joint accounting, all of sort of these things, and, and some of the sticky stuff around non-compete language I like to get done early so that we're very clear. Because some of my authors continue to indie publish at the deal memo stage, I want to make sure that I clear a path for them to be able to continue to do that. Often, it's a source of income for them that they can't afford to lose. And you know the new traditional publishing deal isn't going to replace that. So we just need to make sure that the author doesn't publish on top of themselves. And we can always work that out with the publisher. They're I have never not been able to work that out. It's just a question of making sure that we're very clear going into it that this is something that we have to take care of before we get to the contract. So I do this deal memo to kind of hammer out these high level points so, so that when the contract comes with along with our agency boilerplate, we should be in decent shape. But we go through the contract. I share it with the author to make sure that they don't have questions, or if they do, then we step through that on the phone and then back to the publisher it goes. And then we'll generally with the publisher, we'll go back and forth a couple times, hammering out the details, and then we go to signature on the contract.
1: And that's often where the option comes in as well in that contract, right? So if an author writes a subsequent book, depending on if the if this contract is for one book or two books or whatever, whatever kind of contract it is. When they're outside of the contract, there's often an option period saying, we want to look at what you've written after that and have first rights of refusal.
0: That's right. So the option clause is a standard part of any contract. And we negotiate the timing on that when we can present the option materials and that kind of thing in the original contract. But it's very rare that a publisher doesn't want the opportunity to have first look at the author's next work. Because in almost all cases, they are looking at this as an investment in the author's publishing career. So it's not a one book wonder. They want the long term relationship, just like I do with the author. There are unique one off circumstances where we've gotten rid of an option for a particular reason. But in almost all cases, the publisher will have an option. It doesn't mean that the author has to stay with that publisher it does mean that the publisher will get a first look at the new work.
1: Well, it goes back to what you said before, in terms of most authors are going to need to have several books, maybe even more than that, before they really have name recognition and have built up a fan base. And so the author and the publisher can work together for that and continue to sort of build up the author's presence. Yes, that's the goal. Yeah. So how does the option work exactly? So I will have signed a two-book contract. I'm outside the contract. Those books have been published. I have a third book. Do I have to present it to the publisher, but I don't have to take their offer? I mean, how, so you're not bound. It's more an option to have them look at it versus a right of first refusal.
0: That's right. And generally you are not, if, it's, if it is, in, as in your example, a two-book contract, generally we have negotiated that the option book may be presented after your second book has been delivered and accepted. So all of your revisions have been accepted and it's on its way to the production process. Ideally, you don't want to wait until that second book has been published because the lead times in publishing are so long that that would unduly delay your third book in terms of when you could sell it and and get it published. So we generally, most agents are negotiating to make sure that That first look on the next project comes before the last book on the contract has been published. So it does often present an author and an agent with some interesting strategy discussions. Let's say the first book did just okay and didn't earn out its advance yet. The second book is now going into production and you have a third book that you're presenting to the publisher. Some authors actually believe they want to wait until that second book publishes to see that because they believe it will do better. But it's risky because if it doesn't, then they may turn the third book down. Or while they're waiting for the second book to come out, they may be willing to make a bet that between the second and the third book, you're going to continue to grow So they want to continue to invest in you. So there is a little bit of strategy in options um, in terms of timing. But my general feeling is that investing and keeping with the same publisher for at least a number of books is a wise way to go. Because when you move, you do kind of abandon your earlier books there. And at some point, that becomes necessary for some authors. It just depends on the search the circumstances. But there is a strategy that has to go into that option and how you approach it with your publisher.
1: Well, certainly, because in what you're describing, say my second book hadn't actually been published yet. I mean, it was ready to go, but it hadn't hit the market. And I'm thinking, oh, I really want to leave this particular publisher. And so I come forward with this third book and I don't want to take their option. It may be a little tricky for what your book is going to do as it heads out and whether they are going to really support it a lot, I would think.
0: Yeah, it can be. Now, look, they have money invested in it as well. So that's true. We would remain on them to promote it and that kind of thing. But it does get a little tricky. And authors are reluctant to, quote, abandon their backlist with a publisher um, because you do lose some leverage over them, that's for sure. Um, You're probably not the top of their list in terms of promotional dollars if you've now moved on to another publisher, but it happens all the time. And depending on an author's circumstances, at some point, you just got to pull the trigger and make the move. And it really depends on the situation.
1: Absolutely. And just finding the right fit and that right fit may be great for a few books and then something may happen or change, and you may decide I need to go in another direction. Exactly. Yeah. So you've gotten all of that done, the book is sold, and it's moving its way through the publisher. What do you do then?
0: Well, the promotion planning for the book is critical. Probably the very earliest thing we do that I get very involved in is helping secure author endorsements for the book. I think it helps Generate amazing buzz if you can get your fellow authors to read and provide praise for the book. In my historical uh, author group, they have joined together in a group they call the Lionesses.
1: Oh, I love that.
0: Yeah. They all met, many of them met at the Historical Novel Society in 2019, I think it was in Maryland. And they formed, we had a big dinner together and they formed this group. And it is just a wonderful group. They support each other and they warmly welcome new authors that I signed in this community. But they will often read for each other. They often critique for each other too, before it even gets to the point where we're sharing a complete manuscript. But they're a super supportive group. But that is one of the early things that we do is we go out and get author blurbs And I'm very active in helping secure those, whether it's from my my group of authors or others. I will go to their agents, their editors, whatever it takes to try and get that sort of dream list of author blurbs. And what an author is looking for is someone that they admire and that someone whose work they believe that audience will be a good match for their book. So that's usually what we're looking for when we're going out for endorsements.
1: Well, and what I have found is in addition to providing blurbs, a lot of times the authors will then promote the books. You know, you see a lot of that probably among your lionesses, actually, as I'm thinking through who I see posting about different books. So, you know, Erica Roebuck posting about Kate Quinn's book or Carrie Mars or somebody as it comes out. So I see that in terms of not just the blurb, which is wonderful, but also continuing to promote and mention it and highlight it.
0: They definitely do that. And I feel like the author community is, in general, so supportive of each other. And that when you can cross audiences like that, I think it's huge. Just like you said, if you liked Erica's book and you see her on Instagram promoting Kate or Alex Rickloff or... Christine Wells, you're gonna go, oh, maybe I should take a look at that, because it's gonna be something in a similar vein that Erica loved. So you probably will love it too.
1: I think that's exactly right. And that's interesting. And it is so supportive. And I have found that about almost everyone in the book community. Authors, the publishing world, bookstagrammers, agents, everyone. It's just such a friendly, building up group.
0: I think that's true. I think in general it's so supportive and I think it's really necessary because there is room for everybody. It's not like if Kate's successful, then somebody else can't be. I think so many readers are voracious readers and that they will just look for something new to love along with continuing to buy their favorites when the authors they love come out with their new works.
1: I think that's exactly right. It's not like it's a pie. And there's only so much space to maneuver. It's endless. You can just keep adding to the authors that you like. And, you know, most authors take a decent amount of time to get their next book out. As you mentioned, the publishing process is slow and it takes time to write a book and all of that. So there's always plenty of time to add in another author. I think that's right. Yeah. Well, what do you think about the necessity of an agent in today's publishing world?
0: Well, I guess I'm biased. It depends on what you want, though, really. If you want to be traditionally published, then I think you need an agent. Some publishers now are agented submissions only. Not all of them, that's for sure. And the reason they do that is because we provide a service sort of in, we review slush for them, basically. And in theory, we're bringing forth the best of the best for them to look at. So I, I think if, if you want a traditional publishing path, then I believe an agent is your best ally to make that happen. But I think it's really important to do your homework on agents, as in any industry, right? Not all agents are the same. You just need to make sure that you don't take necessarily the first offer of representation, but that you have done your research and that you're certain that it's the right offer. For you, If you want to indie publish, and I am a believer in indie publishing, that there's a true home for indie publishing, and that's all you want to do, then you may not need an agent, particularly if you're doing translation on your own and you're doing audio on your own, which many of the most successful indie authors are doing. They'll, they take all of that on. They've created small businesses around their writing, which I think is amazing. So it really depends on what your goals are, I think.
1: Well, and it seems like there are more of these hybrid publishers coming on as well. So you're not truly self-publishing, but you are a lot of times paying to have your book published and you're working with a publisher, but it's more of a hybrid situation.
0: Yeah. And I don't know as much about that because generally if someone is doing that, they're probably not using an agent. I'm always a little leery of someone who is paying a publisher. To publish their book, there are wonderful small presses, one that we work with, Blue Box, uh, that publishes Jennifer Armantrout's From Blood and Ash series. They're delightful. They're super professional. They do a fabulous job with Jen's books. And they're a small press, but she certainly doesn't pay them to publish her work. They make their money because they do a good job on selling her books and distributing them throughout the country and Canada. So I'm always a little leery if someone's asking you to pay them money to publish your book. That I guess I would look at with care.
1: No, I agree completely. I get all these pitches all the time, just like everybody does, all these constant emails about different things. And I'm always getting these things saying, would you like to write for our blog? We only charge you $200. I'm like, no, no, no. I charge to write for the blog. I'm not paying you. So yes, I think it's the same kind of thing. Yeah. But it's just interesting. But I think there's just becoming more and more ways to do some of this. It might be more independent. You might not need the agent. But if you're going the traditional route, I think an agent, as you're mentioning, is just a must. Yeah, I think that's probably right. Well, what about all of the different genres and the fact that it seems like sometimes that it's pretty set, like there's domestic thrillers and there's mysteries and there's mystery series and there's historical fiction, that sometimes there's not a lot of genre crossing, though I do think actually in the last couple of years, it's gotten better. Do you feel like you have to really keep that in mind as you're reading a book that if it's not going to fit solidly in a genre, that it might be harder to sell? It
0: can be because it's harder for people to envision how they will market the book. So Often we're looking for comparable titles because you want to understand the market that the book is targeted towards. So, yes, a historical sci-fi or something, you know, if <laughs> I, to go to the extreme, i how would you market that book? Because the the market of readers that are reading traditional historical fiction, for example, might completely turn away from that. Where one of the places I run into that is with a dose of magical realism sometimes. Right now, I think it's kind of in. Editors are somewhat interested in that, a little a dose of magic, but for a while, I couldn't sell it. And I love it. I was a big, you know, outlander fan from way back when, and I loved time travel. I loved a dose of magical realism, but there was a time in the business where it was really hard to sell. So I think there are ebbs and flows with that. It just depends on the genre and where you're trying to go with it. But it can definitely present hurdles for an author if they're really trying to do some genre bending or breaking, I think.
1: And I guess that's something you can discuss with them on the front end when you have that initial call. I love your book, but I'm not exactly sure who I will target to try to buy it.
0: That's right. Yeah. And often, you know what, it may not get that far to be completely honest. If you're like, oh gosh, I just can't see the market for it. Then you may not get to the point where you're having a phone call because I may have rejected it at query. Or then I realize when I read the pages that there's something there that I just can't figure out how to get around. So sometimes it just resurrects a barrier for an author to getting published. But if they're passionate about whatever that particular unique element is, then I feel like that is where indie publishing can really come in to play and allow them a lot more creative freedom than maybe the traditional model will always allow for.
1: That's a great point. And the other thing I've heard authors talk about is putting it aside, writing something a little more traditional, and then seeing where the market goes. Because I know like Reese Bowen, who I, I used to work at Murder by the Book, and she would come every year and she had written this World War II story around the late 1990s, early 2000s. And her agent's like, nobody's going to read World War II. Yeah. And then, of course, you know, 15 years later, there's World War II everywhere. Yeah. And she said she just put it aside, kept writing other stuff. And then when World War II was more popular, she sold it then. Yeah,
0: yeah, that that is absolutely true. And I can think of one of my author's books like that right now. And I just said, you know, let's set it aside for now. And I'd love to come back to it maybe in a two book deal as the potential second book and we'll revisit it then.
1: Well, and that leads me into my next question. How do you keep up with publishing trends, especially when it does take often several years to get a book out into the world?
0: You know, you kind of, it, it's hard because you're often, we you feel like we're chasing what's selling right now, right? And you have to be careful to try not to do that. So I think the key for an agent, really is selling things and stories that you love. So even if it's a little bit different, like I did Rachel Linden's The Magic of Lemon Drop Pie, going back to my magical realism example. And I was so caught up in that book. I absolutely loved it. And it had a big dose of magic in it. So then you have to say, okay, what else is out there that well, maybe there isn't a lot, but I love this book so much that I'm going to try it anyway. So then you've got to be careful not to chase what's selling right now. And we've seen that happen in the industry, right? Back back in the day when new adult was big and everybody was chasing new adult. And then all of a sudden, it, the market was flooded with it. So it's a little bit of a minefield to navigate to try and keep up with, quote, trends and pair that with, selling books that you are passionate about and want to try and pursue that path to publication for them.
1: I always think of vampires when I think about that, because there was just this explosion of vampire stories. And then all of a sudden, everybody was like, I'm kind of done with vampires, but there were still vampire books everywhere and they weren't selling.
0: Yeah, I think that's right. And I think that's what happened to the paranormal romance market for a while too, is that it was so hot. And then it just... Completely was saturated. And then I couldn't pitch a paranormal <laughs> anything, no matter how much I loved it. And uh, look, and then it comes back around, right? And maybe in a different form, we call it something else. But you have to be careful because you can chase something right into oblivion where the market is completely saturated. And by the time the book that you were so passionate about comes out, it's like, oh, it's, you're swimming upstream to t- try and get airtime
1: for it. Absolutely. Though I will tell you, and I have been saying this for years now, that I keep thinking domestic thrillers will have topped out at some point just because there are so many of them, but they just seem to keep coming and people seem to keep reading them.
0: I think that's true. And I think that's true for World War II now also. I agree. Some publishers say, oh, World War II. But you know what? There, there's always room for a good story. There's always room for a tale of heroism or the untold element or story that was discovered that somebody has found and researched and come up with a brilliant idea. So, I think that there are certain sort of broad genres that will never go away. Contemporary romance will never go away. There's always room for a great contemporary romantic story.
1: Well, and I agree with you on World War II. I do think people say that a lot, but I read a ton of World War II. And I think Madeline Martin's latest book, The Librarian Spy, is the perfect example. I have read so many World War II books. I didn't even know Portugal was neutral till I read her book. And, you know, she brought that whole world to life. I have recommended that book to so many people who all say the same thing. I didn't know Portugal was neutral, you know, and learning that whole story. So I think because it went on for so long and so many countries participated, there are a million more stories to be told about World War II.
0: Oh, for sure. Yes. The Librarian Spy is so good. So and good. her new one is so good, too. <laughs>
1: oh, good. Well, she actually was one of my Patreon early reads. So my group read it early and met with her before the book came out. And she was telling us all about her new one. And I'd seen her trip on Instagram. And I cannot wait to read it.
0: Oh, it's going to be so good. Yes. I can't wait. We're working on the cover now. so Oh, yay. That's yay. always my
1: favorite part. <laughs> Well, before we wrap up, and I know this is probably a very hard question for you because you represent so many wonderful authors, but what have you read recently that you would recommend?
0: Oh, uh, it's going to be my authors, I'll tell you, which I know seems self-serving, but that's primarily what I read because time is short. Um, I do read others occasionally in between, but um, there's a couple. There's one called The Girls in Navy Blue by Alex Rickloff that's out, I think it's out. It may be out tomorrow. I have to look at my calendar. It's delightful. It's a little-known story of some of the very first women in the U.S. military for World War I, the Ye- Yeomanites, Y-E-O-M-A-N-E-T-T-S. And they were these trailblazing women determined to do their part in World War One. And she tells this just amazing story of friendship based on uh, the real life story of of women during that time. It's delightful. Another one is one that's coming next year, which I'm kind of getting ahead of myself, but it's called Her Lost Words by Stephanie Thornton. It is about Mary Shelley and Mary Wollstonecraft. It is the most compelling mother-daughter story. It is absolutely, you cannot put it down. And it's Coming in March, so I'm way ahead of the game for most people, but it is utterly delightful. Okay, one more that I just have dug into for the second time, which is The Three Lives of Alex St. Pierre by Natasha Lester, coming in January. So, so good. And it's another one of sort of those unknown tales. It's actually a lot of it is set post World War II in the uh, house of Christian Dior, the fashion designer, as he brought the house back to life uh, with a a woman working as his publicist. In real life, that was a man, but Natasha chose to make that character a woman. woman. And it tells the story of the woman behind the scenes for Christian Dior. But then you also step back and there is a whole Italian set World War II element that tells the story of Alex St. Pierre and what she did do during the war. And so much of what women did during World War II was never told, and they were never recognized. So I'm always so fascinated by these stories of these women. So anyway, all of them are amazing, and I could go on. But those are some of my more recent
1: uh, reads. Well, I just put together my most anticipated historical fiction list for 2023. Put it on my blog actually yesterday, and I was like, you know, I feel like there are a lot of books coming out, and it'll be 15 to 20. I'm through like early May, and there's like 32 books. It is amazing how many wonderful historical fiction books are coming out next year, and you've just added to my list as well.
0: Oh, my gosh. Yes, yes. You must read Natasha Lester, and you must read Stephanie Thornton. And, and, and. I could, believe me, if you ever need recommended reads, I'm
1: happy to share. I know who to ask. Well, I love Stephanie Marie Thornton's book about Jackie Kennedy. Oh, you're going to love her lost words. Yeah, it sounds really good. So I need to get it added to that list right now. I was yes. just thinking I forgot it somehow because there's so many coming. I know. That, you know, It's like, I keep thinking, oh, wait a minute. And I go in there and add one more and that's the beauty of it. I can just keep updating as I go, so.
0: Yeah, she's with Berkeley. So let me know if you need help getting a galley.
1: Okay, thank you. I definitely will. This has just been wonderful, Kevin. Thank you so much for joining me. I hope we get to meet in person someday, but I just love talking with you today. And I'm so glad you joined me on the Thoughts from a Page podcast.
0: Well, thank you for the opportunity. And yes, if you ever need something to read, let me know. If you would love to interview one of my authors, I'm always happy to help. So
1: do uh, keep me on your list. I absolutely will. And you keep me on your list. I will. Don't you know
0: the job?
1: Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you liked this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram at Thoughts From a Page. Consider joining my Patreon group to access bonus content and support the podcast. Tell all of your friends about the show and rate it or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. I hope you'll tune in next time.